we bought the property for 12.55 million dollars and we sold it for 17.8 million dollars what does it take to do a multi-million dollar multi-family deal my guest today is leslie also the director of operations and co-founder of excite capital investment who owns and manages 168 million dollars worth of multi-family real estate we discussed the ins and outs of a multi-million dollar real estate deal he went full cycle on but that's not all were there any red flags when we bid on the deal initially we came in second place look the only reason that these deals are performing so well or they were performing so well is because of the market and a lot of operators were riding the market. You have to factor both of those into your success, but you have to also remind you that there's some people that lost deals during when the market was up. Keep listening to hear his response. I am a trained nurse anesthetist and I still practice as a nurse anesthetist on a part-time basis. Um, and um, like uh, most people, uh, we, we thought to um, the, the way to get to the American dream is the traditional path of going to school getting a great job, earning an income, and then take, taking care of your family, which is what I, I followed. Um, so I chose the career where I believe will give me the ability to be able to, um, to take care of people and have a stable um, source of income for my family. Um, and so that's how I find myself into nursing. Then finally I advanced to, uh, went back for more advanced studies to get into um, nurse anesthesia. And it was, it's a great job. Um, I'm very, very grateful for my job. I've been in my um, current, where I work at for the last eight years, throughout my whole career as a nurse anesthetist. I'm very, very grateful for that uh, hospital and for the job that I have and for what it's been able to do for me. While I was working like two years into my career, um, I just could not see myself doing this over and over, going through that same motion of doing this, uh, getting a paycheck over and over for the rest of my life. Um, what I later on learned in life is like I am a growth uh, motivated kind of individual where if I find myself in a situation where there's some kind of a ceiling, I don't feel like I'm living up to my full purpose. So um, so those were those feelings that were circling in my mind two years into my nurse anesthesia career. Um, and then I stumbled across a book um, on, um, on investing by Robert Kiyosaki. Actually, it's called Second Chance at Your Money in Your Life. I read the book and it opened my eyes a lot to uh, investing and um, some of the struggles that I was having at that time as a millennial with student loan debt and all this other stuff. Give me like a brief uh, understanding to the U.S. financial system, just enough of curiosity for me to be able to go in and dig in more. And the book also gave recommendations on what I could do. So I just followed that path and just opened this wealth of knowledge and growth that just came along with it. And um, along the way, I discovered multifamily investing, which was like the perfect um, path for me because it, it required me to grow significantly as a person. It also gave me an opportunity to be able to provide a tremendous amount of value to a significant amount of people, uh, which is something I was very passionate about. So um, so that's how I, find my, I found myself here and um, um, founding a company that has grown significantly over the last uh, four years. We love that book, Second Chance. I read that Robert Kiyosaki book. Awesome. It's one of my favorite books of his. I like Fake Asset, Fake as well. It's like Fake Assets, Fake Money, Fake Teachers. That was awesome. And he's one of my favorite authors of all time. And I'm really glad that you brought up your your aha moment almost in that career because I think a lot of people can, can relate to that. And in the past, I've heard you regard, reference this misconception that you had, and I know we had it as well, when we first started in real estate. And it was this notion that you could make more money or see more success much faster than in, that you really can in reality. It's a, it's much, it's a much slower burn. 
And my brothers and I are always joking, like, this is a long-term play. And it's not even a joke, it's true, but we always have to jokingly remind ourselves. And so I wanted to know, with that being said, how many deals did you have to look at? Today, we haven't really said this yet, so I'm going to say this, but we will be diving into a particular deal that you went full cycle on. We'll explain what that means. Before we get into that, I do want to kind of just clarify and provide some context as to how much work went into finding this deal and the reality of finding this deal and how that ties into that misconception you had. Yeah, um, every deal that we've had, we've had to work really hard for. Um, and again, is again, is real estate investing is not buying real estate. That's a difference. There's a key difference, right? If you're buying real estate, you could buy whatever you want whenever you have the money. But if you're investing in real estate, you got to find something that would actually yield the returns that you're looking for. And um, for us, where a majority of our, of our investors are like uh, our colleagues, uh, people that we work with in our career, uh, we are very, very diligent in how we find our deals. So um, our first deal that went full circle on that we're going to talk about today, we're probably on the road about 250 deals before we're able to find this deal. Like um, like reviewed 250 and did a full underwriting or maybe about 100 uh, before we're able to find this deal. So like you said, Karen, it, it's, a, it's constant effort over time that wins. Uh, one of our mentors usually says it's like an inverted pyramid. At the bottom, you got to put in a lot of work, put in a lot of work, and then, then, then it gets better over time, but it takes time. It's, it's a long-term game, for sure. Absolutely. My brothers and I have also, before we did our first deals as lead sponsors, we've, we looked at hundreds of deals. And I, I know, I believe it's probably harder now, but it was always hard in general. You know, so it was never easy, and, and it's definitely a game of persistence and sticking to it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you have succeeded in going full cycle on multiple deals. The one we're talking about today, I believe, is called The View at St. Andrews in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, starting off, I do want to maybe have you define what does it mean to go full cycle on a deal? Okay, that's right, Karen. So correction, we've gone full cycle on one deal, which is The View at St. Andrews. We've acquired uh, six other, um, five other deals over the last four years, but I haven't gone full cycle on the others. So full cycle essentially is like acquiring the deal uh, managing it, implementing your business plan, then leading on to the end of that business plan and exiting out of the deal, um, like um, accomplishing your business plan. So, um, yeah, so for that deal, uh, we acquired it in um, April of 2021 and we were able to exit out in December of 2022 uh, when we met, uh, superseded our business plan projections and felt it was a great time for us to exit. I love it, man. Thanks. So without getting into too much detail, let's just introduce the, the view. Can you... Tell me a little bit about where the property is um, and just maybe like like the unit size of it. The view uh, was a classy um, C, C plus property, uh, 132 units located in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, when we purchased it, it was called Churchill at St. Andrews. And we actually rebranded it during our hold and did all of the work that we did on there and changed the name to the view at St. Andrews. So let's, let's start with the market. I know there's a saying Grant Cardone always says, location, location, location. I know a lot of people say that, but I've heard him say that a lot. And so it's no secret that the market is one of the foundational factors that you have to take into account when you're looking at a deal and analyzing it. Uh, so what attracted you to that market of South Car of Columbia, South Carolina? And what were some of the strong characteristics there? Population. Uh, there's a great population size in the Columbia MSA. Um, then like we started to see because the, the whole state, most of the state of South Carolina has experienced a lot of growth over the last uh, 
uh, five to ten years with South Carolina at the time back in 2020 being ranked as the fourth fastest growing uh, state in the U.S. Uh, but a lot of that growth had been happening in the Charleston area, the Greenville, South Carolina area, Spartanburg area. Not as much as in Colombia. So, uh, but Colombia is the capital city of, of 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 South Carolina. So we started digging into Colombia to see uh, um, what the drivers are, or what the future holds in Colombia. Actually, went down there, had some conversations with the EDC, that's the Economic Development Council, and felt like uh, the EDC was at, at that time Colombia had a uh, commission like a study i forgot the name of the university that did the study on how to grow colombia over the future and they came out with some really really good pointers now when you start seeing stuff like that about cities you know this is cities that are transitioning to a more progressive side of that are, and um the edc was very welcoming to us as investors so and um so we looked at population growth the market was growing in population uh median household income in the in some of these pockets was was really good so it's a nice stable um, um secondary market uh that we liked so um we decided to to uh, start looking at some assets over there and um and make it one of our main markets and you mentioned it's a class c it was a class c property we're we're all we're value-add investors i know i believe you are as well um I, just for context a value-add investment is any commercial property with existing income but significant opportunities for improvement through operational enhancements market re repositioning or redevelopment I wanted to know, like, what were some value-add opportunities at the property that, that you're referencing? Oh, absolutely. So um, we bought this from an owner that we've actually bought another deal from, and he has a reputation of identifying great assets and just holding and not doing anything. So it really had a, a lot of meat on the bone. This property was built in the 70s, and no major renovation had been done to the interiors, just the exterior where the roof had been changed. Um, and it has like really good bones. So in that same market, you had other properties that were implementing a renovation plan and uh, rents were growing. Our rents uh, were like $200 below market to organically, then plus the value add. So we saw an opportunity where we could come in, upgrade this property, take it out from the 70s and bring it up to the 2020s and, um, and, and bring in a little bit more nicer amenities, make the units more up to date and be able to capture some of that delta, which is exactly what we did, starting from the outside, then started moving in, and um, which was a very successful um, business plan. I've heard an investor say once that every deal has some hair. Uh, and I, what he meant by that was that every deal is going to have some issues or it's not going to be a perfect deal. There's no such thing. And so I'm guessing that you know this sounds like a great opportunity, but it wasn't a perfect deal. I wanted to know, were there any red flags that maybe you had to overlook or realize like a, a way to mitigate before you went through with the deal? Absolutely. So uh, one of the things when we bid on the deal initially, we came in second place. The person that won the deal backed out because he went and did a, and saw a news report about a flood that was on the property. Um, so we were, we went back, we were worried about the flood, went in there, did our due diligence, talked to the city. So we realized that the flood was caused because there's a drainage area um, that was that dirt at, that blocked it where water usually drained during heavy rainfalls and it had not been taken care of like it, they were not being proactive on taking care of that so that's what caused the flood it was not in a flood zone insurance was not worried about it being in the flood zone and we spoke to our property manager spoke to the city and we felt really good about the mitigation plans that had been put in place so we we, we went over and took it on the contract and um in addition to that you you're very right Cohen. 
um i usually tell my partners i usually tell everybody that uh, i think i heard this from um from um peter lineman uh that every operator has to be humble enough to understand that your performer is always a hundred percent wrong it's always wrong all the time right so but you want to be conservative or not so that it's wrong in a good way so um there's there are always surprises that come like when we close the deal two weeks after we closed the deal there was a fire on the property like we had actually gone to Atlanta to celebrate as a team. Then we were driving back to, to stop by Columbia to the property. And on our way over there, the property manager called us and said, there's a fire on the building. Now you could imagine all the thoughts that were going through, but we, we calmed down. Thankfully, nobody was hurt, managed that very well. Insurance covered the, the damage and we were able to renovate that unit and uh, rent it out for a higher premium. So, so those, those things will always come and, um, your performer, you're going to meet them. And the other surprise that we got was, uh, the change in the expenses. Inflation came, we were budgeting 7,500 in renovation, but with COVID and the shutdowns, everything went up and we ended up renovating at about uh, $10,000 per unit, which was way higher than what we projected. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to ask you about, cause like you said, you can, have the most conservative underwriting as possible and, and have a bunch of levers you can pull. But in reality, no one can predict the future. No one has a crystal ball. So you really don't know what curveballs you're going to get thrown during the business plan and your implementation of that. What can you expand on the business plan and your, your process and your experience during the hold period and maybe some of those challenges that you didn't foresee? Like what were they and how did you pivot? Oh, absolutely. So there were good, there were challenges and there were a lot of great things that, that happened as well during our whole that were not part of our business plan. For example, when we went in, we on the road that rent growth was going to be about 0% year one and then year two start going to 3%. But then with COVID, everything went with inflation, rent started shooting up. We were getting rent growth of about 10, 10 to 15%, uh, which is not something that we on the road. You know, I also talked about the, the the renovation cost, which went up higher than what we anticipated. And the other thing, too, that worked actually worked in our advantage was um, at that time, we bought this right in the middle of COVID. So the lenders required a lot of reserves. They required COVID shutdown reserves, this other reserve, that other reserve. But with all those underwritten in the deal, the deal still worked. But eight months into our ownership, those guide, guidelines became loose. So those reserves got returned back to us. So the property was very, very well capitalized to really weather like any kind of storm uh, with all the reserves that we have because we had the COVID reserves that other lender reserves then had our own operational reserves. So any changes in expenses we were able to manage. The other struggle that we had was with, um, with um, our team employment. Our maintenance person had to leave, um, left in the middle of our business plan. So we had to be borrowing maintenance people from other properties. Uh, which made the cost a little bit higher. Um, yeah, so so those those were some of the main challenges that we faced with the business plan. But uh, the great thing is, with every business plan, you gotta have uh, um, um, like uh, reserves, mitigating issues, so that when things go that way, you have something to fall back on. I want to back it up a little bit to before you closed the financing side of things, because of course you have to pay for these deals, and this is a really big deal. So that's such an important factor that you have to consider and, and structure. What was that experience like financing this deal? Was there any caveats to it or uh, challenges when you were approaching that? Um, not, not, not as much. Um, at that time, debt was still very readily available and uh, relatively cheap. Uh, we used our, our Fannie Mae debt on this property. Um, interest rates was like 3.45. 
although we're underwriting 3.7. Um, the whole debt process was smooth for this asset. Um, I, fortunately, our KPs uh, had a lot of experience and were very much involved. So they helped us work through that process. So, so financing for this asset was smooth and um, raising the capital too for it because we have spent a lot of time educating, educating, giving a significant amount of value. Like going back to what you said, it's a long-term game. Uh, we had been in business for almost two years, like working hard, working the pavement before we were able to even close this deal. So all that work came to fruition on when it was time to raise capital for the deal. I love that. You were an overnight success that took two years, right? <laughs> it's, still, it's still working, right, Karen? It's still got a long way to go. <laughs> Absolutely, man. So this isn't necessarily a spoiler because we've already said it, but you obviously, you know, went full cycle on that deal and sold it on the back end. Uh, I know some would argue, I've heard this, that you're not like, you don't really earn your stripes in the space until you go full cycle. So that's, that's really awesome that you guys were able to do that. When it did come time to sell the asset, what factors influenced that decision? And how did you determine it was the right timing? So um, we... When we have an asset, we're constantly evaluating the market um, because, again, our, our number one goal is uh, is to save our investors and don't lose our investors' money. The second goal is to make sure that we grow their wealth um, over time. So we're constantly evaluating the market to see where things are. Are we at a good position where we can exit? So at that point, we had completed all of our exterior um, renovations. We had um, gained a significant amount of growth in income from the organic rent growth. And we had been doing our interior renovations as well and doing great premiums. So um, our initial plan was to renovate 74 units, but we had done about 32. So um, doing a BOV on the asset, we saw that we could hit the numbers that we projected to exit at EFI uh, in, in, um, in 21 months at that point in time. So we made the decision to exit because the other reason for doing that is because a lot of our investors, I'll say 90% of our investors, this was their very first time investing in multifamily syndications. So having that proof of concept for them, for them to be able to see that they're able to grow their wealth and be able to do this and do this safely was very important for us. So we saw this as a great opportunity as well to return capital to our investors, give them some of those gains and for them to do whatever they want to do with it. And um, actually, most of them actually ended up 1031ing with us on that asset to, uh, to another asset which we purchased in Baltimore. You underwrote, you know, with a plan to exit uh, when you did, or maybe a little later than you were able to. But I know there are some investors, multifamily operators, who will raise capital and do long-term holds, so like ten years, thirty years, and that is what they they want to actually be building the long-term wealth, holding the asset. Whereas with with the more short-term, I don't want to call it a flip because it's not like the same as a flip, but you're essentially doing a short, shorter hold period. What's your philosophy with that? Is it does it make more sense for you, and is it just because you had to because of the investors, or do you prefer to really be moving from one asset to the other and growing the wealth that way versus just holding that same property more long term? So it's going to be a mixture of both. Um, so it's asset by asset based. There's some assets that we identify and we say well, we're going to hold this uh, long term. Um, we want to do that with our investors, give them an opportunity for long term wealth and to hold on to these assets for a very long period of time. So it's asset specific. Some of those assets are ideal for like a value add plan and exiting and moving on to something else. Some of them are going to be better for a longer term hold. So we educate our investors on both business plans. Uh, I believe this year and the coming years, we're probably going to acquire a few assets that we're going to hold for that 10 year long period of time as well. Uh, yeah. So um, again, 
the asset determines um, 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 what plan we want to go with it. For more context, can you actually just remind us what what was that property purchased for, and then what did you end up selling it for? Absolutely. We bought the property for $12.55 million and we sold it for $17.8 million. So able to appreciate it by $5.2 million in 21 months. So this deal is obviously a success and uh, for both you and your investors. And aside from the profits that you made on this deal, I think it's more value than that is the lessons that you probably, uh, the lessons you, you collected and, and learned along the way. And so uh, anything that you'll do differently with, with any deal moving forward? I would say um, probably would have bought the, that asset much earlier, um, being a little bit more uh, pushful in the market at that point in time to buy my assets. We were very, very careful, um, um, a little bit too conservative sometimes, but which is good. That, that worked out really well. Um, what else? Um, it was it was it was like a really, really great, um, great business plan, great opportunities. Obviously, there are always a lesson to learn um like i like some of the examples that i gave you but overall it was like a really really good process um i learned a lot i learned a lot of positive lessons uh, especially about the power of partnership um the power of surrounding yourself with a strong team and people that are better than you in every category um one of the reasons that why we were so successful on that asset is because of the partners that we had on this asset uh, for example, uh, Chris Lento with EM Capital, whom him and I would manage the asset management team. He's just a brain and a genius on the operation side. So we're able to piggyback on some of those experiences and avoid some mistakes that you could make without having that experience. So that's one of the most valuable lessons I learned from this asset. That is the power of uh, partnership and building a strong team. So I have, I have, it's not really a question because it's evident that you guys know what you're doing. And the deal succeeded because of the team, like you just like you just said. But there's this sentiment in the market right now where people are saying that, oh, look, the only reason that these deals are performing so well or they were performing so well is because of the market. And a lot of operators were riding the market and the appreciation that it was seeing. And now that that's not really happening so much, it's the time of the operator. The, the, the age of the operator is now. And we'll see, quote unquote, who has been swimming uh, naked once the tide rolls in. And so with that sentiment, can you maybe just share your perspective on that? Absolutely. Um, you have to factor both of those into your success, right? Um, but I have to also remind you that there's some people that lost deals during when the market was up. There's some deals that did not give returns when the market was up. So um, so why does that sentiment that, oh, um, everybody was just closing deals, you know, so you got to give credit to, to, to um, the people that exited the deals at that point in time and that did well. Uh, because it took some amount of operating the asset to keep it um, um, solid at that period of time. I know at least uh, a couple of assets that, that ended up selling during when the market was at its peak, but the investors ended up not making uh, any money off of it. So, But you are right. Um, the sentiment about this being the age of the operator, is it, it's correct. And um, and this and and I love it because it's it's bringing the best friends out of us, right? It's making us be very innovative, thinking ahead, thinking of different strategies. But and all these experiences that we have, guess what? It doesn't go away, Kevin. Um, things are not gonna be this way anymore. So moving now into the next cycle, you earning this this these experiences that will take you on to be um, successful in the future. The operating side. I love it. It's not we're not we're not afraid of the operating side because um, we we believe in the power of educating ourselves, building, having the best 
team, the best people on, on site that we could work with to, to, to operate this asset. So we, we, we've been experiencing that ourselves, tightening stuff in our various assets and making some great improvements. So um, it's challenging, but I actually love it because um, it, it, it's bringing the best out of us. Yeah, and so is, is your acquisition strategy right now in this current environment of, I don't want to say high interest rates because it's always relative, but higher and, and fast interest rates that are increasing at a faster rate, as well as the un- economic uncertainty and just the, the, the shift that's happening in the market right now. Has your acquisition strategy changed? And maybe you did touch on this, but can you emphasize or expand on any particular operational changes you're, you're doing? Absolutely. Um, we're still looking for assets. We're always active, looking for deals. So if you have a deal out there, reach out to us at Excite Capital. We're always looking. We're not sitting on the sidelines. Again, every deal goes through the same rigorous underwriting process like we do. Um, we make adjustments based on where the market is at. Uh, we use reliable data sources like CoStar and all this other um, um, data, like RealPage to, to do our analysis and do our projections and tend to stay on the conservative side. And if we put all of those systems in place and the deal still makes sense, we know that uh, the risk going in is low, we're going to take it on, on the contract. You know, as regards to some of the operational changes that we're making, um, again, um, one of the things that we've learned in business, is not just in multifamily, like what's two of the most key things that you have to think about is innovation and marketing, right? You have to be innovative and you have to market, market, market your assets. Right now in this age of like um, of high delinquencies, uh, low vacancies, that's where the marketing comes into place. So we're using different strategies. In one of our strategy, in one of our assets, we uh, used an influencer uh, marketing strategy to really target that same um, the demographic that is appropriate for that asset. And starting to see some success to that, uh, we we testing other marketing uh, platforms for some of our other assets and using other kind of uh, uh, marketing systems to be able to see what kind of response we're getting from it. Um, we're still maintaining the same kind of standard when it comes to KPIs and keeping our property managers on track with everything. Um, I'm doing more frequent trips now to our assets. Uh, thankfully, one year is in Baltimore. I just visited it this morning. Uh, our asset in Atlanta, I've been there twice over the last uh, month. Um, again, so the asset that is that requires a lot of work, we're there on the ground with the team, making sure that the team has everything that they need to succeed and supporting the team and building this strong team around us. So, so it, for me, it's really been a, a fun process, uh, believe it or not, because uh, I'm enjoying what, I, what we're learning along the way. I'm enjoying some of the, the changes that we're able to come up with, the things that we're able to t- try and then seeing the results happening on the asset. So, so, um, so, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a good experience. Yeah, so you could come to our website, which is www.excitecapital. That's X-S-I-T-E capital.com. Or you can follow me on any of the social media platforms. My name is always Leslie Awasom at Leslie Awasom on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram. Uh, reach out, connect. Let's um, learn more about you as well and find ways that we can give value to each other.